This is the story of Henry Sutton, Australia's greatest inventor. Hello and welcome once again to the Henry Sutton podcast as we unpack and unravel the story of the inventor who conceived and designed so much of the technology we use today, but who has been written out of the history books and somewhat forgotten until now. We left you in the previous episode with the knowledge that by the age of 27, Henry Sutton had delivered to the world the design for the modern telephone handset, built the first telephone network in his hometown of Ballarat, and also designed and built the world's first rechargeable battery. And to the astonishment of some of the richest men in New York, rejected their offer to sell the patent to this battery, declaring the idea should be used for the benefit of all. He was a complex man, engaging in months-long debates via letters to various technical magazines and journals to prove his ideas were first and founded on evidence-based assessment, but he also freely gave his ideas for others to patent. Not all of them, but many of them, to allow the biggest benefit to society. His background as a homeschooled kid who studied at the School of Mines in Ballarat was also a problem for the establishment. Even more so when he became a popular teacher with somewhat unconventional methods in this era of strict classroom discipline and rote learning. By 1883, he was the first lecturer in applied electricity and magnetism at the School of Mines in Ballarat, teaching the first class in Australia upon the topic of electricity and magnetism. Can you imagine what a class with Mr Sutton might have been like? He of course had connected a telephone line from the School of Mines to the network he had built, connecting his family's music emporium and warehouse with the fire station, making it the first educational institution in Australia, if not the world, to be connected by telephone. He also built a telephone line on campus just for his students to experiment with the telephones he had taught them how to build. And of course, he'd made sure the classes had been fitted out with electric lighting, no doubt utilising the light bulbs he had designed with the carbon filaments and manufactured with his now commercially used vacuum pump. But it was his reputation as an energetic, charismatic and non-conventional teacher that started causing problems. Here's Claire Gervasoni, the historian and curator of antique collections for Federation University, who's got her hands on the archive of evidence of Henry Sutton, school teacher. I mean, we're sitting in this place here, the Jeffrey Blaney Research Centre. This is a combination library meets the warehouse from the last scene of Raiders of the Lost Ark. There are just all kinds of manner of devices. There's ancient Victorian era scientific devices on the table before us. You set off on a mission to go and liberate these artifacts of Henry Sutton's from the collection. What have you found in that almost 10 years since? Well, interestingly, the Ballarat School of Mines was the first school of mines in Australia. And from year dot in 1870, there was a museum. Unfortunately, that museum was disbanded. Some of the items went to other collections, but some did get thrown down a mine. So we don't know what's missing from Henry's time. But he did lecture in electricity and magnetism, 1883 to about 1887. And we do have great records, minute books, annual reports, all sorts of bits and pieces that that hopefully can connect us to him. Going through the minute books, there was some angst with Henry's classes towards the end. They're a little bit concerned about 
the noise and the hijinks coming from his classes, which in that era was not done. You know, today we'd say it's busy noise and hooray, they're, they're so excited about what they're finding that you can hear it. But that apparently was not going down very well. So there's complaints about the, uh, the, the sound of enthusiasm from... Uh, I call it enthusiasm. What every teacher wants in their classroom today. But back then... It, it was reported at the council meeting. But Henry Sutton had more pressing problems than Victorian-era attitudes to classroom discipline. At that time, Australia had no industry making its own scientific and electronic equipment. It all had to be shipped out at great expense from London. Now you've got a book in front of you right now. I am seeing a genuine yellow, yellowed pages, ancient tome. What does that say on the back? Leather bound. It's the Ballarat School of Mines annual report. And I have opened up to the 1884 annual report. And there's one page that's been written by Henry Sutton, A-S-T-E. And there's a few interesting parts in it. But he does say, The class has been unfortunately situated by having to wait for instruments of precision ordered from England, but which have not come to hand. The delay has caused us to start constructing instruments, which it is hoped will bear favourable comparison with those of older date. And this is a crucial moment because of all the things Henry Sutton innovated, invented and inspired, one of the bigger things that he did, and that's what I think Robin Williams has pointed towards, was that he ostensibly began Australia's industry in making its own scientific instruments. In our collection here, we do have one ammeter that has, it's not primitive, but it has some aspects of the primitive about it. So you can see where the drill has drilled holes for wires to go through and the scale, not an electrician, the, the scale is hand done so all the lines are drawn with a biro and the number or not wouldn't have been a biro back then with but with pen and ink I guess and the the zero one two and ab that so it's all hand done so we attribute it to Henry but of course we don't know but Henry has left very few items and this is one that we think if it's not made by him it's associated with that time and and it's the, the link to what was written in the annual report. And while Henry is privately fuming over the lack of instruments available to teach his students in Ballarat, the relentless march of discovery and innovation continues worldwide. In 1885, a series of technological discoveries and announcements are made. The Eastman Film Company manufactures the first commercial motion picture film. A German engineer named Gottlieb Daimler receives a patent for something called a motorcycle. And elsewhere in Germany, a technician and inventor named Paul Gottlieb Nikov patents what he calls an electric telescope and what history refers to as the Nipkov disc. And Henry Sutton gets an idea. It's something this 30-year-old inventor has been musing about since he was a teenager. And he puts it together with another discovery, this one 10 years earlier, by the Scottish physicist John Kerr, who invented a sealed glass cell with nitrobenzene, which responds to applied electric fields by changing its refractive index. He called it the Kerr cell. If this sounds a bit complicated, one of Australia's greatest poets has neatly summed it up for us in a poem. Here's a reading of a poem published in 1990 by the great Les Murray. It's titled The Tube. Many resemble Henry Sutton in sleeve links in Ballarat, who invented television. 
Later, several would do that, but not in 1887. Telephony, he named it well. His Greek was more correct. His design was theoretical, but Nipkov disc and Kerr effect and selenium photocell all were there. It would have worked and brought the Melbourne Cup alive to Ballarat, which was his object. But no one had yet sent an aerial wave, and wire had this defect. Signals couldn't race so far along it that they'd sustain a picture. Only when the horse-drawn age was passed could horses surge into the air with music and gunfire, galloping broadcast. Tremendous means and paltry vision. Some will dare ask you about that in your interview, Henry Sutton, in Ballarat, in your Floriat, standing telephones on your front lawn. Now, Les Murray's poem contains a lot of factual clues as to why Henry Sutton did not transmit the 1885 Melbourne Cup to Ballarat, despite this claim being published repeatedly online. But yes, he did go on to build one and demonstrate it. And that demonstration leads to another world-changing piece of technology. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's get back to the year 2018 and back into the office of Graeme Hood. He was the last official lecturer at the School of Mines Ballarat in the subject that was debuted by Henry Sutton over a century before, electrical engineering. Basically, the, the, the telephone was adapted from a, a disc from a German um, scientist, Nipkoff. And the Nipkoff disc had a series of, of um, holes around, uh, concentric holes around, uh, in a spiral shape, around a disc. Um, what Henry did with his is to cut down the number of holes, and so therefore at, at any one point of time as the disc was rotating, only one dot was available to be seen. So in other words, if you had a small screen, and it, it was in a circular fashion, as, and as most people understand, with a TV in, in days gone by, the scanning across was from left to right, and then you'd go down the rows until you'd finish scanning the whole rectangular pattern. This was done on a disc, so as soon as one one hole had gone across the, the, the part of the screen, the next hole would come off. Now, what that meant is, of course, on a disc, uh, which is about half a metre in diameter, you had about 16 and, and possibly 32 holes, which meant that they took up one sixteenth or one thirty second of the total angle of of the disc. So it made it very specialised in terms of you know. So that only at any one time though, only one dot appeared on the screen. But the screen, the dot appeared in different places, and so and that's why it went across. Now Henry Sutton's telephone was the technological framework that John Logie Baird would use when he developed television in the nineteen twenties, and as Les Murray pointed out. By the 1920s, the technology to broadcast a wireless signal was in place. Graham actually built Henry Sutton's telephone, albeit without the life-threatening amounts of raw electricity and explosive chemicals used in the 1880s. Now, what we are able to do was um, <laughs> we used an electric drill, and um, also uh, an LP record was Christmas Hits of 1983. My apologies to whoever it was that did that album. So we put some holes. I did make a smaller one, but we needed the um, the LP size disc, and um, I, I would have got a bigger disc if we'd been able to. But that fitted in nicely. We sat that over an overhead projector, so I put the screen on the overhead projector, and from that we were able to that that disc then rotating across that screen was able to produce an image of one dot, which went across the screen bit by bit and progressively filled up the whole screen. And you recreated. The, the telephone experiment that, as we understand, 
uh, Henry demonstrated in 1885 uh, to some of the uh, the leading figures in Ballarat. Yes, I, I believe so. It's, it was a it was a pretty grainy image, and uh, but look amazing, you know, to see it and um, and it flickered. It did give an image to be able to see the the thing, and with the overhead projector instead of the optics that he had, we were able to produce that. Now with some of his optics, um, that was uh, there was quite some incredible optics in that to be able to get the. Uh, the stuff. I also, um, when it came to the actual turning the image on and off, so in other words, you can imagine now a series of dots going across, filling up a, a sort of a segmented display as, as a series of dots. Now those dots either had to be black or white, or if possibly grey in between, but they would be sort of somewhere between black and a white. So each dot, and then they build up the image. So, it, so you had to get the light turning on and off associated with the disc going across. It was very well coordinated, the whole process. And um, and that meant that you would have a digital signal. And the only complicating factor in 1885 was that the idea was to use gaslight at Flemington in Melbourne at the race course to power a system up telegraph lines to get the signal to Ballarat. Yes, because I remember too at that time, I'm not quite exactly sure, but later on that time when the light globe was being invented. So, yes, you're right, there were flames and it was gas. And again, um, I, I did I did find at one stage that uh, I believe that in the early stages they've used actually gas pipes for the conduction of the electricity through the um, using the gas. And they would have, at that stage, they would have had with one gas pipe. Um, I've seen something somewhere where he's obviously used a gas pipe. Very dangerous stuff. And they would then put the other end of the conductor into the ground so that you'd use the, the, the lead pipe as one conductor and the ground, the earth, would be used as the other. And on the 30th of May, 1888, Henry Sutton invites some people to his home on Doveton Street, Ballarat, and demonstrates the telephone. He also demonstrates something else, something that a German physics professor would be credited for inventing nearly 30 years later. Here's Lorraine Branch, Henry Sutton's great-granddaughter. Tell us how Henry Sutton invented the fax machine. Well, that was a spin-off from, from the telephone because his idea was, because he already came up with a photographic process and the idea was for, for newspapers around the world to, to be able to transmit a photograph of the news that was happening, say, in New York to London. And his vision was so people could actually see what was happening rather than just report it later on that you could transmit a picture within hours and have it printed and his whole process his half-tone process that he came up with which he commercialized in England and here in Australia it, that was the whole idea behind it to come up with a way to report the news it was the birth of photojournalism it was in the 1890s there was a few people coming up with photographic processes but Henry's idea was to be able to transmit them to be able to print within hours of the incident happening, which we know today is an instant thing we can do on our telephone. Let's unpack this because Henry's association with photography and with newspapers, you know, that was a personal love of his and many of his inventions served to revolutionise journalism as we know it. And as you say, uh, photojournalism gets its beginnings partly with a technology designed by Henry. But before that, 
there's the half tone process that he invents. Yes, yes, that it was it was faster, quicker, and cheaper to do. It, it, it was very expensive to print photographs in newspapers, so there was only be a limited amount. And when Henry took his process to England, it, it was four times cheaper and faster than what was already on the market. And he started up and he trained people and he sold licenses around the world and in England to print these photographs and. He did quite well and and then he had to come back to Australia and eventually new processes came on the market and he eventually sold his patents on as new things came up. But it was right at that period where photographs could then be published in newspapers very readily. The 1890s was when it all happened and he was right there in the thick of it. And it went to Eng- uh, America after England. The year is 1890. Two American journalists, Nellie Bly and Elizabeth Bisland, compete against each other to emulate the fictional feat of Phileas Fogg in Jules Verne's book Around the World in 80 Days. Nellie Bly wins, circling the globe in just 72 days. The United States Census Bureau starts using Herman Hollerith's punch card system to tabulate its population data. It becomes a landmark in what is later referred to as the history of computers. Hollerith's company would later rename itself IBM. Francis Galton announces a demonstration of the uniqueness and system for classifying fingerprints. Australian poet Banjo Patterson publishes a poem called The Man from Snowy River. And in Ballarat, the town's leaders and its council members gather for a very special dinner. Henry Sutton is headed to London and the locals are not just giving him a formal send-off. They create a huge illuminated manuscript with a message on behalf of the town. You can still see that illuminated manuscript today. Henry and his wife Elizabeth set off by ship to London, where he starts talking to publishers about his half-tone printing press, joins the London Camera Club, and starts work on developing new kinds of camera lenses. His previous fame for inventing the rechargeable battery sees him invited to a royal function where he meets the German Emperor Kaiser Wilhelm, along with the Duke of Cambridge, Princess Mary, and the Prince and Princess of Wales. He also meets with the top figures of science and technology, like Joseph Swan, William Priest, and John William Strutt, better known as the physicist Lord Raleigh. But it's nothing compared to the meeting he has in 1892. In February of 1892, the Institute of Electrical Engineers sends out invitations for a lecture to be given by Nikola Tesla. The room is packed, and Tesla begins what is now a landmark speech in the history of technology. I cannot find words to express how deeply I feel the honour of addressing some of the foremost thinkers of the present time and so many able scientific men, engineers and electricians of the country greatest in scientific achievements. This investigation, then, it goes without saying, deals with alternating currents and, to be more precise, with alternating currents of high potential and high frequency. Just in how much a very high frequency is essential For the production of the results presented is a question which even with my present experience would embarrass me to answer. Of the various branches of electrical investigation, perhaps the most interesting and immediately the most promising is that dealing with alternating currents. The progress in this branch of applied science has been so great in recent years that it justifies the most sanguine hopes. Hardly we have become familiar with one fact when novel experiences are met with and new avenues of research are opened. This is the speech where Nikola Tesla unveils something called alternating current electricity. 
AC. And Henry Sutton is sitting in the audience. Each day we go to work in the hope of discovery, in the hope that someone, no matter who, may find a solution of one of the pending great problems. And each succeeding day we return to our task with renewed ardour. And even if we are unsuccessful, our work has not been in vain. For in these strivings, in these efforts, we have found hours of untold pleasure. And we have directed our energies to the benefit of mankind. He is so affected by this, he writes a 1,500-word report about it to the Ballarat Star newspaper and sends it to them the next day. In it, he writes, quote, Tesla has found quite a new field in electrostatic alternation. In short, he deals with the electricity of the lightning flash. His experiments show that a rapidly alternating electrostatic condition is capable of being used as a means of transforming energy from the lower to the higher form of light, and demonstrated it in a remarkable manner before the Institute of Electrical Engineers. He simply took a long glass tube and brandished it in his invisible electrostatic field of energy, and it became a luminous sword. Tesla made many experiments, all brilliant and novel. Lamps with only a block of phosphorescent material inside, lamps with a solitary upright thread, he produced electrostatic flames without consuming the material. And Henry Sutton finishes his report with these words. Science seems to have just stepped within the borderland of wonders, the nature of which it is hard to conceive, and Tesla is to be thanked by all engaged in research for lighting the way over this borderland. But Henry Sutton wasn't just an eyewitness to all of this. The many friends and connections he had made in London since arriving in 1890 included the very people who had invited Nikola Tesla to make this speech. And it wasn't until he went to England that he was talking about his telephone and how he can transmit a picture. And they encouraged him to publish his paper, which they did in 1890. And now Nikola Tesla would have read that paper because it was republished in America and and he would have read that. And then when he got to England, Henry knew William Price and Sir Riley, which Tesla knew because he came to give the talk, and they introduced each other. And he thought, well, we'll see how we can go. So with the permission of Price from the Telegraph office in London, they transmitted a picture. And I'm still looking for extra information on that, but the, it was recorded in a Washington newspaper a few years later so that he tra- he successfully transmitted a short distance which was great so and then when he came up with his wireless telegraphy system it was also mentioned there that he successfully done that did henry ever actually make a telephone yes he did <laughs> because he used it in england with tesla so it, it would have been similar to a fax machine but it's 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 like in the in in his schematic paper that was presented in in the journals at the time that's basically the concept and that's what he presented when he went over there and that's what they used it's 1892 nikola tesla and henry sutton have just faxed an image in 10 years time arthur corn will get the credit for inventing the basic technology for the fax in 33 years time edward berlin in france will construct the berlinograph which uses a photoelectric cell that becomes the basis of the modern day fax machine Henry will stay in London for another year before returning to Melbourne, but he has an entirely new focus for his inventions and innovations. Nikola Tesla didn't just speak about alternating current electricity in his speech at the Institute of Electrical Engineers. The scientific man does not aim at an immediate result. He does not expect that his advanced ideas will be readily taken up. His work is like that of a planter for the future. 
His duty is to lay the foundation for those who are to come and to point the way. He lives and labors and hopes. A mass in movement resists change of direction. So does the world oppose a new idea. It takes time to wake up the minds to its values and importance. Ignorance, prejudice and inertia of the old retard its early progress. It is discredited by insincere exponents and selfish exploiters. It is attacked and condemned by its enemies. Eventually, though, all barriers are thrown down and it spreads like fire. This will also prove true of the wireless telegraphy art. The wireless telegraphy art. Henry will return home and begin working with wireless. He will end up developing technology that will become an Australian military secret. He will make a radio transmission that is picked up 5,000 kilometres away in the Pacific Ocean and results in a delegation from the US Navy coming to his new home in Melbourne and requesting a meeting. And he will also be threatened with jail for his experiments. That's episode four of the Henry Sutton podcast. Much of the information you've heard here is based on the research of Lorraine Branch and published in her newly released book titled Henry Sutton, The Innovative Man. The quotes from Nikola Tesla were sourced from the archive of his letters and lecture notes at the Emerson Center for the Study of Invention and Innovation at the Smithsonian National Museum of American History in Washington, D.C. My name's Jared Watt. Thanks for downloading this podcast and taking this journey with me.